whether it's fame in basketball or it's rock and roll or whether it's fame by being a model or whether it's uh, a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. <laughs> the Bible's very clear. It, it ends up uh, with a torn up heart and brokenness. Um, and Christ will still come in and, and restore. And, and you know, that, that message is it's not unique to America. It's it's the message that really you can take anywhere in the world, and that's why it was just so glorious to be able to go and uh, share it in the, the streets of a, of a country that was very, very foreign to all of us. And so um, with that, let's just, uh, let's just uh, proceed into the service now. We will be in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 13, the sermon. Just have a couple announcements before we begin. Uh, their men's group and women's group will resume the week, I think, of September 5th. And uh, until that time, we will be having a fellowship for, for both men and women on Friday nights uh, at the house of uh, Guillermo and, and the rest of the guys. Uh, that's at 7 o'clock, starts this Friday for the next couple of weeks. 7.30, starts at 7.30, thank you. Uh, we will we'll go for a couple uh, weeks with sort of a combined fellowship. Then the women will be uh, splitting up. Uh, they will be meeting on Wednesday nights, and, and the men will be meeting on Friday nights. Uh, if there's anyone here uh, who needs a parking token, we offer them for uh, free at the end of the service. Uh, and I think that's about it. If you have any beepers or cell phones, please turn them off. Okay, please rise for the reading of God's word. Matthew 13, verse 53. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, raise your hands. Nice and high. Here, we have one right here. Bible, anyone? Matthew 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this, is his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. Now he did not do many work, mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, I just want to, Lord, just pray this morning that our hearts would open up, Lord God, to the, to the message that we've already sung about and we've already seen with our eyes, to the message of your mercy, your grace, your redemptive purpose for our lives, Lord, that there is... Um, a, a, a future for us, and it involves completely, absolutely, wholly you, Lord, and, and really uh, nothing else. And Lord God, everything else follows in the wake, Lord God. And Father, I just pray that uh, you will just uh, do a work through your word 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Unbelief. Unbelief. Verse 58 there says that uh, Jesus didn't did few works. He didn't do mighty works in his hometown in Nazareth because of their unbelief. And you know, so often Christian pastors and teachers, they give examples of what sin is. They may be preaching a sermon on repentance, the need to repent from sin, and they they throw out examples of what sin is. And uh, more often than not, what you hear, uh, the examples that they give, sex outside of marriage, alcohol, drugs. They may throw in lying, cheating, stealing. And the danger with this, and unfortunately what has really happened is that people begin to identify those things as almost being synonymous with sin. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about sin, he rarely gives those examples. Almost every time Jesus addresses sin, he addresses two things, pride and unbelief. And he singles out the latter, unbelief. He singles it out, unbelief as the most dangerous sin, the thing that we need to be most on guard for, the thing that we need to repent of more than anything else, unbelief is a sin. And it's the most insidious, destructive sin that buries within our hearts, oftentimes undetected. The Bible teaches that all other sin, listen to this, all other sin proceeds from this sin. All other sin originates with it. It starts with it. What did the serpent say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say you could not eat from any tree? Eve proceeded to abandon her belief in what God had told her, and she chose unbelief. All sin starts with Unbelief. But really, it's much worse than that. The Bible says there's only one sin. One sin. There's only one sin that can separate man for eternity from God. Unbelief. We lie, we cheat, we steal. What happens? We're overcome with guilt and conviction. We, we get on our knees and we say, God, please forgive me. I lied to my boss today. How could I do that? I looked him right in the eye and I lied to him. God, your word says you'll forgive me of this sin and cleanse me of this unrighteousness. Please, Lord, cleanse me of it. But yet we go through a day refusing to believe the promises of God. How often do we go... To God with the same conviction. It should be the first convic- confession on our lips. 
In fact, when we lie, we cheat and we steal. Our first confession to God should not be about lying, lying, cheating, and stealing. It should be that we chose not to believe God's word. We chose not to believe God's word when he promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us, that all our needs are met in him, that in him we have all things. We didn't believe that, and instead we took matters into our own hands by lying, cheating, stealing, or whatever. Now, nothing grieves the Holy Spirit more. All sin proceeds from unbelief. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a second, you know, that's not really fair, what you're saying. How can I help it if I don't believe in God or the Bible? I can't help that. I mean, some people are just able to believe. Others don't. That's how life is. Not true. Look at the passage before us. What does it say? It says in verse 54, it says the people, after Jesus had taught them in their synagogue, it said they were astonished. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? And where did he get these mighty works? They weren't denying that his wisdom was supernatural or, the, or, or his mighty works weren't there and true and really happened right in front of their eyes. But they decided, they chose to not believe in who he said he was. They were offended at the whole scene in front of him, it says, and they decided to, to reject uh, Jesus. They decided not to believe. They could have decided to believe. They decided not to. The Bible says that whether a person believes in God and believes in his words is a choice. It's a choice. If you look at the Bible, the Bible's really, when it gets down to it, it's a long document, but it really, at the end of the day, it's very simple the way God just foretells the truth. And one of the things the Bible uh, teaches is that all people, all people, are divided into two categories. The first group sees God at work in their life. They seek out after him. They want to believe in him, and they choose to. The second group sees God at work in their life. They do not seek God. They don't want to believe him because it would mean releasing control of something in their life. And what happens? They choose not to believe. There's no better example in the Bible than the one before us this morning. These people chose not to believe. And it says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We would do well to understand what it is, unbelief. And what I'd like to do uh, this morning is to take some time to look at an example uh, of a believer in God, a follower of God, one of the mightiest followers that ever of God that ever lived, who chose unbelief and where it took him and how God restored him. So I'd like uh, for you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 
chapter 27. Now, I understand that a couple weeks ago, God gave a, uh, a lesson through uh, Scott in uh, chapter 30. And uh, uh, in case you haven't figured out, uh, our church, uh, Calvary Chapel, goes uh, backwards. We do things backwards. And eventually, we'll make our way back to Genesis, and uh, then, then we'll go on to Revelation, and someday we'll come back to Matthew. But anyway, First uh, Samuel chapter 27. First Samuel chapter 27 is, in my opinion, one of the most overlooked, if not the most overlooked, chapters in the Bible. It's a story in the life of David and involves what can only be described as a shocking account, a shocking account of David turning away from God. We often hear the story of David and Bathsheba, which is really uh, another tragic story of a, a season of failure in the life of David. Well, First Samuel 27 is a story of another season like that, although it occurred much earlier in his life. And it, it's the story of how David chooses unbelief. He made a choice. He knew what the truth was. He knew what God wanted him to believe. He knew God, but he chose unbelief. Now, the only way to fully understand the background of this chapter is, uh, to, uh, is to go through a few things. Uh, at the beginning of this book, 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is crowned by Samuel, the prophet, as the first king of Israel. And at first he did pretty good. He did pretty well. Uh, but over time, he disobeys God's word. He starts uh, running the kingdom as if it was his own. He uh, sets up a monument to himself. He, he really turns into this paranoid, uh, jealous, just consumed by selfish uh, ambition. And, and um, over after a while, the very same prophet who anointed him king uh, comes to him and confronts him and tells him the Lord is going to tear the has past tense torn the kingdom away from him and give it to and and has given it to another man. Now David is that other man. David at the time though didn't even know that he was king. In fact, he was just a shepherd boy, a poor shepherd boy. The Bible says the least in his family. And, and, and Samuel uh, went to David, who was uh, out in the fields, and uh, went to him, and he anointed him king in a, in a private ceremony that wouldn't be known to Israel for many, many years. And, and you can imagine the bewilderment that was in David's soul when this happened. Uh, but at that time, in the eyes of God, David was king of Israel. In the eyes of man, Saul was still king. In the eyes of God, David was king. And it would be ten long years before David would actually take the throne. Now, during that years, uh, slowly but surely, the Lord trains David. Uh, David is given favor in the uh, eyes of the people of Israel. He kills this mammoth giant Goliath. He defeats the Philistines and the enemies. He does many other mighty works. And, and soon, King Saul realizes, so this is the man. This is the man who... God has crowned uh, a king in my place. 
And rather than submit to God's plan, Saul works as hard as he possibly can to thwart God's plan. He tries to kill David. First, he tries to kill him with his own hands. He throws a spear at him. Uh, next, he, he, he sends him out into battle and tries to set him up to be killed uh, there. And he hires some people to try to kill David in his sleep. Eventually, David flees and uh, spent years being terrorized by Saul for eight years. And Saul basically pursues David with his entire army. Uh, and David lives in caves and, in, and in next to rocks and in the open fields. And uh, it, oftentimes he lives at the mercy of others. And one time David got bread from a priest. And, and, and Saul found out about it and killed that priest and 79 other priests who uh, were colleagues of his. And, and, and this went on for years and, and, and years. It got to the point where in the chapters immediately preceding 1 Samuel 27 that spies were everywhere and they were reporting every single movement that David made back to King Saul. And, and David was just... Sort of an emotional wreck. He couldn't spend a night in a single place. Before the morning even came, someone would say, you've been found out again, and he would be moving on. And that is the introduction to 1 Samuel 27. Remember our theme now, folks. Unbelief. First verse says this. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Again, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Now you may say, well, what's your point? What's wrong in these circumstances with David escaping to the land of the Philistines? The answer, everything in the world. Everything in the world. First, the Philistines were the arch enemies of, 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 of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament was in many respects what the church is to the world today. God raised up Israel to be a light to the nations, a kingdom through which the Messiah would come and the world would be redeemed. At the time of 1 Samuel 27, the Philistines had been attacking uh, Israel for a hundred years. Thousands, tens of thousands of Israelites had died. Tens of thousands of the people of God had died at their hands. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, David chooses to go right into their camp. Second, the Philistines worshipped false gods. Those of you who are studying through the Old Testament with us will remember that one of the reasons that God gave this area of the world over to Israel is because the sin, the wickedness, the evil that was taking place in this area of the world was so bad, was so abhorrent, 
so repulsive to God. And for the most part, the wickedness that was so, uh, it was, that was so uh, abhorrent to God was taking place in the temple of these false gods. And uh, Philistia, of the land of the Philistines, uh, was this, had the same pantheon of false gods that, that the other nations did, Baal, Ashtoreth, and Dagon. There was child sacrifice. There was temple prostitution. was part of the worship service. Uh, there was the just the worst kind of evil. They have a picture of one of these gods that was worshipped at the time. And, and it's a, like this uh, woman god, and, and, and she uh, is literally devouring human beings. And up to her knees, there's human body parts. And here we have in 1 Samuel 27, David going right into the heart of this land. Now, you may be saying, we'll see if I see your point, but uh, David's been a fugitive for eight and a half years. I mean, King Saul was pursuing him everywhere he went. There were spies recording his every movement. He was living in caves, in the open field. He had nowhere to lay his head. He lived in constant fear and worry. What about his family? What about his servants, his children? He didn't have an obligation to take care of them. David was precisely where God wanted him to be. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. Listen. David had been anointed king of the most important kingdom in the history of this planet. The kingdom through which the Messiah would come. The kingdom to whom we've been through whom we've been Redeemed, and you don't just go from the the shepherd's field to the throne of uh, of a monarchy. You need to be trained by God. You need to be disciplined by God. You need to be go go through the refining fire. You need uh, to learn to trust in God. You need to learn to walk with God in the storm, in the fire of life, in the most difficult situations imaginable for a prolonged period of time. You need to learn about the faithfulness of God. You need to learn about the love of God. And and you may be living in in caves. You, you you may be living in the open air. You may have nowhere to lay your head or you may be always on the run. Your life may be constantly in danger, but that is never, ever a reason to align yourself with the enemies of the people of God. <coughs> Brother, sister, it doesn't matter how bad things get. It doesn't matter how bad the depression gets, how much warfare may be in your home, in your family, in your job, how stressed out things get, how bad your finances are, that's never, ever a reason to align yourself with the world, to climb over the fence and join the world and, and just doing its thing, being immersed in whatever vain pursuit the world is, is, is doing these days, drinking from the cup of the world, drinking from its table. Remember the subject of this sermon, unbelief. What happened here? It says, David said in his heart. It says, David said in his heart, This is Unbelief 101. And I don't know what universities are teaching in their courses these days. They're 
Boston, they're probably teaching unbelief 101, knowing the city, but, but this is it. David's not talking to God here. I like the NIV translation. It just says, David said to himself, unbelief always starts with us talking to ourselves. Unbelief always starts with listening to the fears and the anxieties of our heart. Rather than to the still, small, steady voice of God and to the absolute explicitness of his word. It says, David said in his heart, brothers and sisters, that will get us in trouble every single time. He said, surely I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Let me tell you, that wasn't God speaking. There was no way, there was no way that David was going to perish at the hands of Saul. David had been this close to death so many times by now at the hand of Saul. And he had always escaped. He had always been rescued. Not only that, he had 600 men who had come up alongside of him during this season of his life. There's not a record of a single one of them ever being taken. God had demonstrated himself to David for eight years repeatedly that, he, that David was his man. He was the anointed. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. There was no way David was going to perish at the hands of Saul. Now, tragically, what happened? David became weary. He became weary of the place where God wanted him. And he made the worst mistake any follower of God can ever make. He listened to his own heart. And he gave in to unbelief. And, you know, I, I, I see... What David did here, I see Christians do far more often than I would like. They take an easy way out. They take man's way out. They compromise and take the world's way out. God has them living outside of their comfort zone. And they say, I just want, I want that comfort. I want that comfort zone again. And and, and what happens? What do they say? The same thing that David says in verse 5 here. Look at verse 5. It says, then David said to Achish. Achish was one of the kings of the Philistines. So he goes into the the land of the Philistines. And here in verse 5, he says to the Philistine king, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. In other words, translation, no more living on the front line for God. No more following him with all my heart and all my strength. No more serving him with zeal. No more of God's great plans for me. No more of God's dreams for me. No more of God's will for me. Uh, Just give me some place in the town, in the country, that I may go and dwell and live out my days in peace where I just can't be bothered with all this God stuff anymore. And what happened? David got his wish. 
God always allows us to make these kind of choices. He gives us a very dangerous thing when he gave us, gives us a free will. And, and you see it here being exercised. It says in verse 6, So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the king of Judah, kings of Judah to this day. Gives him a city. And let me tell you, if you're living for God... Satan will always be right there to offer you exactly, exactly what it is that will take you away from God. He'll dangle it right in front of your eyes. He'll hand it to you on a silver platter. And that's exactly what happens to David. Not only does he get a place in some town in the country, he gets a whole city. Ah, I'm finally free. I got my family. I have my friends. I got my city. I'm free from Saul. I've got it made. Now, it's interesting from the world's perspective, he did have it made. He prospered there, at least on the surface. He had everything that the world would want or desire. He lived there a year and a half, really like a king. And that's what was going on on the outside. On the inside, something very different was happening. Something within his heart. The Bible teaches that it's impossible, impossible to depart from God's will, to go your own way, to leave the people of God, to leave the church, to leave the Bible, to leave God's presence, and not have a slow deterioration of your character, of your relationship with God, of your love for God. The Bible says, he who lives in the world will become like the world, including not only your behavior, but your heart. There are no exceptions to that, including King David. Let's read eight, verses 8 through 12 uh, with me. It says, And David and his men went up and raided the uh, Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Malachites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from all, uh, of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he never left man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeramalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And this was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. Let me explain to you what's going on here. This is really, really bad. This is as bad as it gets. While he lived in the city, he says he would go and raid the nearby tribes. It says in verse 10 that when the king came and asked him what he'd been doing, he would say, oh, I've, had, I've been going killing Israelites. I've been going back into Israel and killing them. So he, he's, he's telling the king a lie right to his face. So you see what's happening to uh, his character. 
And, and, and then it says in verse 11 that when David would go on his raids, he would kill every man and woman, lest anyone could go back to Gath, which is where the king lived, and say, David's killing us. He's not killing the Israelites. He's killing us. And so David is really, he's, he's living a life of deceit. He's living, again, living in the world, living like the world, doing the things the world does, lying, cheating, stealing, deceiving. But it gets worse. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 28. It says, Now it happened that in those days the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight for, with, with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. And then skip over to uh, chapter 29, verse 1. Chapter 29, verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistine passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Now, brothers and sisters, it doesn't get any worse than this. David has lined up with the enemy to fight against the people of God. Turn with me quickly to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Some translations say mockers, nor sits in the seat of mockers. Now, most commentators uh, of this verse here uh, believe that it's a picture of the downward spiral of sin. In other words, first, the first thing that happens when you sort of leave God and you give in to unbelief uh, is you walk in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, you listen, you listen to the counsel of the ungodly. Before you, you heard it and you, you sort of went on and, and, and continued going on with God, but th- this time you listen to it and you start walking in it. Next, it says, Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners. This is sort of the next stage of the downward spiral. First, you, you walk in the counsel of it, then you're just you're in it, you're in the muck, you're in the mire, you're doing exactly what the world does. And then finally it says, nor sits in the seat of the mockers. Now this is an even lower point where you've turned into really an enemy. You're mocking the people of God. You're persecuting the people of God. And this is exactly what has happened to David. What did he do? He listened to the counsel of the ungodly, which happened to be the counsel of his own heart. He gave in to unbelief. And the next thing you knew, he was standing in the path of sinners. He was going out killing everybody and every tribe near him and going and telling the king that he did something completely different. And finally it says, nor sits sits in the seat of the scornful of mockers, 
He's lining up with the Philistines to fight the people of God. Why does Jesus single out unbelief as such a devastating sin? Because of where it can take you. Because of where it can take you. Look at where it's brought David. Before you know it, it will take you to the place where you are lining up against God himself. So go back to 1 Samuel with me. Continuing on in chapter 29. David lines up with the Philistines to fight against Israel. An amazing thing occurs. He lines up in in battle. What happens? Certain leaders of the Philistines see him, recognize him as the one who used to defeat them by the thousands, and say, wait a second, make him back out. Make him back out. Verse 3 says uh, there, it says, Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Verse 4, But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return. And that's that's what he did. That's what he had to do. He was forced uh, to return. Now, some people will read this and say, wow, you know, David came this far, this far from completely ruining God's purpose for his life. And yes, it's true. If he had gone into battle and started slaughtering Israelites, that would have been the end. No kingdom for David. Now, you know, people argue about these things. But I believe there was no way God was going to allow David to go into that battle. And what you see here is the rod and the staff of the shepherd of David. The rod and the staff of the shepherd of David protecting him from doing something so utterly foolish that it would have finished him. What does Psalm 23 say? It says, the Lord is my shepherd. His rod and his staff, they protect me. David was a child of God. He was the Old Testament equivalent of someone who has given their life to Christ, become born again as a child of God, no longer a child of the flesh, no longer just a child with the human father and mother, a child of God. The Bible says that once you're a child of God, you have a shepherd, and he will protect you with his rod and his staff even when you go out and do the most utterly foolish things imaginable. And that's what happens here. But God hasn't finished with David yet. Though David has been saved from disaster, he hasn't learned his lesson. That happens in chapter 30. Let's move right along. This is where Scott was a couple weeks ago. It says in verse 1, so here you have David again. He's been living with the Philistines for a year and four months. He's happy as a clam, at least on the outside. At least that's what it appears. And it says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. In other words, when David and his men were not there, the Amalekites, an enemy 
of the Israelites and the Philistines came in and destroyed everything. It says in verse 2, they took captive the women, those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Verse 4, then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no power to weep. You want a picture of where unbelief will take you? This is it right here. Everything that David took from the world to get away from God, it's now up in flames, it's smoldering, it's destroyed. This is where unbelief will take you. Thank God the story doesn't end there. God's mercy is so much deeper than the holes we dig for ourselves. And even when we've dug ourselves into the deepest hole the world has ever seen, he will never leave us or forsake us. Uh, And and so let's continue on here. It says in verse 6, it says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, underline that sentence, circle it, highlight it with four colors. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. God's always there. And you know, it's interesting, in the previous few chapters, God is noticeably absent You find no mention of God in chapters 27 through 29. David wasn't seeking God. He wasn't praying to God. God did not appear to be a part of his life. He was running from God. You don't see any of the Psalms written in that that part of his life. God, David, had basically checked out. But here in chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord comes back onto the scene of David's heart. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What happens next? David marshals his troop. He sets out to recover what is is lost. And let me tell you, when a man or woman is given into unbelief and aligns himself with the world and loses everything he or or she has, the the road to recovery is hard. And you see that here. Uh, He takes off with 600 men. It's so exhausting that 200 people have to give up and they sort of just drop. So 400 people go on and what happens? They recover everything that was lost. They would recover everything that was lost. Psalm 32, verse 10 says, He who trusts in the Lord, mercy will surround him. Did David deserve recovering everything that he lost? Of course not. He stooped as low as anyone in this room has, has, has ever stooped, anyone in this city. But his God is a God of mercy. And God doesn't change his character just because you or me or anyone else or David goes out and does the most utterly foolish thing and winds up losing everything he has. 
He doesn't change his character. He doesn't say, oh, well, that's just really, really bad. I mean, I've seen bad sins. That's really bad. You know, i got to change my character just for this one, you know. No, God doesn't do that. God's nature never changed. The Bible says he doesn't change like a man. He's not like a man that he should change, the Bible says. He is always there. So Jesus singles out this sin of unbelief. He says in Matthew 13, verse 58, he says, he basically couldn't work with people. Why? Because they chose unbelief. Now, as we've read this morning, there's always a path of recovery with God. And that's why he's such an awesome God. But why waste a year and four months of our life? Why waste a week? Now, I don't know everyone in this room. But I do know this much about you. The Bible says that God has been very involved in your life. From the time you were conceived in your mother's womb. He's not just involved in the lives of people who are going to be king someday. The Bible says he's involved in every single person's life on the face of the earth. Psalm 33, verse 10, puts it, verse 13, puts it like this. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. On, he sees all the inhabitants of the, of, of the people of earth. And listen to what it says. He fashions their hearts Individually, he considers, meaning he's involved in all their works. And so what does this mean? It means now you have a choice. God may have you in a place. uh, uh, You may be on a mountaintop. You may be on the crest of the wave. God bless you. You may be, though, with waves crashing down on you. And you may have been in that place for eight and a half years. But you have a choice to believe everything that God has done in your life from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb to today or to listen to the counsel of your own heart. To listen to the counsel of your own heart. Why waste a year and four months, 20 years, two weeks, why go home one day and see your life in smolders? Many of us have been there. There's a road to recovery. But why do it again? Unbelief. It, it hides in the hidden corners of our soul. We need to do, root it out. Thank God that he is there and his nature doesn't change and there's that road to recovery. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this word, Lord, every bit of it. We thank you that um, not only does your nature change, uh, never change, but the word of God, your word never changes. The themes in it never change, Lord. There's always mercy. There's with grace crowned on top of it. Your word says that you redeem our life from destruction and crown it with loving kindness and tender mercies. 
Lord, we thank you for that. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for each person in here. God, for those who have never given their heart, mind, and soul to Jesus, I just pray, Lord God, that they will choose to believe. They will choose to believe everything that you have done in their life up to this point. God, for, for others, Lord, who, who have made that, state, that um, decision, who have driven the stake in the ground and said, yes, I will follow you, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you'd give them that discernment to lay the unbelief aside and to lay hold of your mercy, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. God bless you. If anyone needs prayer, please come up. You are dismissed.